Dr. Vogels, there are some people in your dressing room. They claim to be from your agency. Agency? I didn't have an agency. to meet you. Such a pleasure. So my name's Channing. I'm the creative director for Craftwork Agency. Can I call you Verbs? No. Cool. Okay. Right on. Oh, let's just dive right into it, okay? So we synced up with our research division and we discovered something really interesting. Mm. Every time you wear a new t-shirt, AWS likability ratings skyrocket up 3% to the cloud. Really? Our strategy team has identified a unique opportunity where we can leverage your new t-shirt at the keynote. And if we help you find the right t-shirt, we think that AWS likability can scale up to like five to 6% year over year. Maybe eight to 9% of our Twitter game is slick. Come try pick my own t-shirt. <laughs> oh, oh no. I, Verna, that is like so last year. So last year. Yeah. Okay, show me what you have. Okay, so nihilism is like huge on TikTok right now. No. We don't even know what this means, but it's like super buzzy. I think our customers are smarter than that. Hmm? Yo, yo, yo. Right? I mean, come on. Like a door, right? I don't think so. Ah, no, that would be insulting to our customers. Yeah, that's what I would call. Last one. Better. Now check this out. Mm -hmm. Wham. I mean, yeah. Well, I wear that face all the time. I would look good on someone else. Why don't you let me pick my own T-shirt? So thank you for all your help. So he's probably. That's a, that's a oh, yes, right? No. Cool. I, okay. Right Thanks. on. Please welcome. Chief Technology Officer of Amazon.com, Dr. Werner Vogels. Nice t-shirt, uh, Shifty. Look at that. <laughs> uh, welcome, everyone, to uh, the first day event. Uh, I hope you had all a really good reinvent until now. As always, it's a learning, it's an educational experience, uh, and I hope that you guys uh, learned a lot uh, in the past days. I, uh, I thought I'll do something different uh, this year, and really focus on uh, a bit more behind the scenes of AWS and Amazon than on sort of new features and services. So. The one thing that we've been very fortunate at AWS is that we've been doing this for, was it 13 years now? And we've gotten a lot of experience in that. And that experience has allowed us to innovate in ways behind the covers that maybe if you've seen all the new services and features that have been launched in the past days, that you sort of forget that there's a lot of things that we're doing behind the scenes. And this is... Uh, there's a quote from, uh, from Jeff Bezos. He says that sometimes innovation, if you want to focus on innovation, you have to focus on the things that will never change for your customers. Because if you do that, you create flywheels that will benefit them forever. And it's easy to see how that works in retail. Yeah? A larger catalog means that you have a higher likelihood that you can find what you're looking for. 
lower pricing, better guarantees on delivery. But then how does that work for AWS? What are the things that never change for our customers? Security, performance, scale, reliability, uh, cost efficiency, um, operational excellence. All those things never change. And anything we do over those parameters will benefit you forever. And most of those things are not things where we put out a press release about. It's really things, sort of innovation that we do behind the covers to, for example, always make sure that we improve the performance of, um, of all the components in the system that we have. And so I thought that today we look at some of those things that we've done at AWS behind the scenes and uh, do a little bit of a deep dive on them and see what kind of lessons we learned from those. And then maybe you'd like those lessons as well. And maybe you can take them home and do something with that. So the first thing where I would like to uh, talk about is virtualization. Uh, virtualization has been uh, sort of the bread and butter of the compute parts of, uh, of uh, any cloud environment from day one. Yeah, and it's one of those major technical underpinnings that have really allowed cloud computing to become as big as that it is. And if you look at classical virtualization, yeah, it's been actually around for quite a long time. In the 60s, the major mainframes would already run virtualization. But the way we see virtualization today, basically the x86 virtualization, is really came to life uh, by major research at Stanford and at Cambridge. The one at Stanford resulted in VMware, and uh, they made use of uh, sort of binary rewriting to trap the privileged instructions into the hypervisor. Uh, Zen took a different approach. And Zen um, actually modified the operating system to make sure that it trapped into the hypervisor to execute these privileged instructions. So if you look at sort of what is the, the basis of virtualization, you know, we really pushed the boundaries of virtualization over time. There was something in virtualization called the root I.O. virtualization tax. It's basically, if you have all these guest OSs, they are all fighting for the same I.O. resources. And especially, you see that in the, in, in the network. If you looked at sort of when um, this virtualization really scaled up, you would see that most of the customers, or most of the guest OSs, would see significant jitter and variations in latency um, on, their, on their network, mostly because they were all fighting for the same network device. So with that, we started to think about how can we radically change this and think about sort of rethinking virtualization such that we can actually create a base for innovation um, for our customers. It also had to do with the fact that the newer kind of architectures um, really were being hampered by uh, the old-style virtualization. Basically, we really wanted to give our customers um, performance at almost bare metal um, if, if that would be possible. And we saw that with traditional virtualization, there was significant overhead in all of that. So we really wanted to build a modular system. At least that's the, the things we do at Amazon. We're really thinking about sort of taking some of the lessons that we've learned in software and actually apply them to the hardware world and the virtualization world as well. 
basically, you should see the tradition of virtualization world as the monolith. Yeah, where all the hardware components actually are managed by the same hypervisor. And so well, if we actually take the lessons from microservices, where you have small building blocks, where you can really quickly innovate on, and if we can those apply those to the hardware world as well, maybe we can change the world of virtualization as well. So just think about sort of, can we create a world where we have all these devices and they have an API. The API may be a hardware API, like your PCI bus, but it's still a hardware, hardware um, it's still an API to which your hardware. So let's take a look at sort of all the different steps that we've taken um, in sort of the uh, evolution of the Nitro system. Now we started off with really traditional virtualization. And really thinking the first problem we tried to solve was that of the network. Because basically, just transferring, let's say, an 8 gigabit file from S3 would result in literally hundreds of thousands of kernel traps. And so we really wanted to see whether we could actually solve that particular problem. So what we did, we actually moved the network component onto a separate card. And so that was really the first version. And that was actually what you saw in the C3 instance that we launched in 2013. And that's, we really learned a lot from actually offloading the I.O. onto a separate card. And it took us actually another two years to really become much more familiar with what it would take to actually offload processing onto separate cards that sit on the same server. Step two was actually in the C4 architecture when we started working with Annapurna Labs to actually move EBS processing into a separate card. So no longer is the sort of the volume processing and the network there um, happening on the main CPU. That was such a success of the, the Nitro card in the C4 that Annapurna Labs actually joined AWS and we started working on the C5, which was a major jump because we could also do all I.O that we were doing on the servers. We would do, say, offload all the I.O. onto separate cards. And the next step was then to really start thinking about, can we actually remove all the other pieces of the hypervisor and move all of those into the control plane on separate cards? And that became the complete Nitro system. So there's a Nitro controller that does the management. And then we also built a new hypervisor that is absolutely really minimized. So you can do all of this. And so the first ones were the X1s, and they actually really became much, much more faster, much better performance, and much more secure than we could ever have done before. So let's take a look at sort of how this works, how you interact with it. And basically, if you would create a volume, an EBS volume, you would do a volume attach. That would actually talk to the, uh, to the EBS control plane, who talks to the um, the EBS card on the Nitro, uh, in the Nitro system, who then actually makes that as an NVMe device, notifies the PCI bus, and then the, uh, the hypervisor traps that and actually uh, mounts that uh, volume then in the, uh, in the guest OS. And we've been quite successful with this. 
If you look at sort of the pre-nitro uh, hypervisor, um, this is sort of a, a typical uh, jitter that you would be seeing uh, uh, if you interact with an EBS device. This is after we've offloaded it onto Nitro. Basically, all jitter has disappeared. This has allowed us to double the IOPS to EBS, increase the throughput tremendously. And if you hear that uh, earlier uh, in the event, that the, uh, the EBS optimized bandwidth has actually increased from 40 gigabits a second to 19 gigabits a second. Now, this is networking and EBS, which is really important to actually all of our customers. But if you look at processing, what has happened to the processors? And if you, David Brown earlier in the week talked about a customer who had a, uh, a requirement of 150 microseconds processing time. If you look at the C4, which is before the Nitro hypervisor was uh, in introduced, then you can see that the customers had trouble actually meeting, um, meeting the processing capabilities. Then we asked the customer to actually try the same thing on the C5. And as you can see, the C5 has performance that is almost close to bare metal. This is purely because the hypervisor is so thin that it is no longer in the way of the guest who has to get the performance that they want. The same goes for, uh, for storage latency. Yeah? The i3s were already beasts in storage storage, but you can see that after the introduction, or the introduction of Nitro, both at the P50 as well as at the end of the performance spectrum, there's rock-solid performance. And it's increased almost as much as uh, 4x. The same, see, the same is if you look at uh, uh, the network-optimized instances that we've created. Yeah, the ones with the, uh, the N at the back of the uh, instance name. And if you went to Peter DeSantis' talk on Monday night, you saw the, uh, the additional board that they've created uh, to give you a 100-gig network. And again, performance increased 4x. And it's not just that we were looking for improving performance. We're actually offloading all of this onto separate cards. We also could improve uh, security. Yeah? Trust no one, kill DOM0. Yeah? We have to remember that DOM0 in the old-style virtualization is a complete Linux instance. Basically, you could log into it and do a memory dump. That is a very big security risk. Yeah? And as such, you know, by actually removing DOM0, you also remove any SSH or other access to the devices, and it's such you create a much more secure environment. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, oh, this is different, and actually I like, this is a very important part of the whole Nitro security design. Basically, you have to control the communication flow. What can happen is that the Nitro controller will talk to the hypervisor. That's allowed communication. The hypervisor is not allowed to communicate back. If the hypervisor takes actions to control, to actually access the Nitro controller, you know that the system is compromised and you can isolate it and you can start investigating it. The same goes. The, uh, 
external control planes, whether that is EC2 or EBS, they are allowed to communicate with the NITRO controller, like we just saw earlier on in the EBS example. The NITRO controller, however, is not allowed to take any other actions. If the NITRO controller actually starts actively uh, going out on the network, you again know that the system is compromised and you can isolate it. This is a unique communication design that allows us to build extremely secure systems. Yeah, so you really need to be able to do, in my eyes, trusted computing in an untrusted world. And as such, we've created two trusted parts. Yeah, there's the NITRO system, but the NITRO system also sits on a complete trusted network by itself, such that all the, com all the components can actually talk to each other. Another thing that we were able to do is actually add encryption to it. And you know that I've been always a big uh, fan of actually the, uh, so encrypt everything. And with Nitro, we are able to encrypt everything. We encrypt your communication out of uh, the Nitro cards by default. Everything is encrypted by default in Nitro. Yeah, and not just the things that go out over the network. Also, your local disks are de-encrypted by default with no performance implications at all. And as you can see, in that way, we've actually improved security significantly. And we can't even trust the hosts or the guests. Yeah? We have to make sure that the guest can no longer, at no moment, actually do anything to the hardware of the machine that we do not allow them to do. And one thing, for example, that we absolutely do not allow them to do is to modify any of the non-volatile memory in the machine. And what we also do when the machine boots up, to actually cryptographically uh, check all the components of the machine to ensure that they are never compromised in any sense, and otherwise we will isolate the machine and actually start investigating. The cool thing was that Nitro now became a base for innovation. Now we could do all these other things that we could never do before. For example, we could do live updates. We could start patching the operating system. We could start patching uh, the hypervisor from the Nitro card without anything taking down. We could add new hypervisors to it. We could also start running bare metal. And we could also create outposts. All of these things have been enabled by the fact that we've created this platform called Nitro that controls our computer environments. But also, another innovation that we had been asked, can we actually protect more sensitive data? We have a number of customers, and of course, EC2 is used for a lot of highly sensitive processing. But customers have asked us, can you do something more for us? Yeah, can we, are there any innovations that you can do? And given that we're now at Nitro, we could do very unique things. And earlier this week, we announced Nitro Enclaves, which allows you to cordon off a little piece of the memory. And that memory is in the called an enclave. And in that enclave, you can run your code. And the code is continuously checked to be cryptographically correct, making sure that that code is never compromised. The enclave also has no access to network or to disk. And you, as the, uh, as the parent instance, 
you can actually communicate it over VSOX with a, with a secure channel. This allowed quite a few of our customers to uh, have even higher uh, control over sensitive data. Now, if you look at sort of NITRO-related innovation, can you figure out where that started? Yeah. We've been able to increase our, the release of 4x number of instances um, after that we induced NITRO. And it really has been a game changer. It has really changed the way that we think about um, our compute environment and the control over our compute environment. It also allowed us to go up the stack and think about sort of can we find support for not just for VMs, but can we find support for containers and for, uh, and for serverless? And with that, we introduced a micro VM called Firecracker. And here to tell us more about Firecracker and Fargate is Claire Ligori, principal software engineer at the AWS container team. Claire. I'm Claire Ligori, and I'm so excited to be here today to take you under the hood on Fargate. Fargate is serverless compute for your containers. On Fargate, we run tens of millions of containers for our customers every week. And security is our number one priority for those serverless container workloads. Virtualization provides a strong isolation boundary between workloads. And in Fargate, we use virtualization to isolate customers from each other and even to isolate each copy of an application. An application in Fargate is made up of one or more containers, and each copy of that application runs in its own virtual machine under the hood on Fargate, isolating it from all other containers running in Fargate. Inside that virtual machine is a dedicated kernel, network interface, data volume, and credentials, so we ensure application isolation at multiple levels. I'd like to show you an example of what a typical application looks like running under the hood, running in these isolated virtual machines. This is reInvent Trivia, an online trivia game about reInvent, and it's running on Fargate. On Tuesday, we announced that you can now use Fargate with the Elastic Kubernetes service, EKS, and I'm running this application using EKS and Fargate. So I'm going to show you what happens under the hood on Fargate when a large traffic spike comes in to this website. Say, for example, I showed it in a reInvent keynote to thousands of people. So let's first look at what happens when I run this application with EKS without Fargate, running on my own EC2 instances. To handle changes in traffic, I've configured Kubernetes to autoscale both the number of containers, called pods in Kubernetes, and the number of EC2 instances. So with normal traffic, like we're seeing here, I'm running a few pods on a few EC2 instances. Now, I've just shown the game in the keynote, so of course the traffic is going to flood in with people trying out the game. But it takes a little while for Kubernetes to spin up enough EC2 instances to run all the pods needed to handle that traffic. So while we're waiting for those instances to start up, we're under-provisioned, causing that big latency spike. Then after a while, the traffic is going to start to drop off. Kubernetes is going to spin down pods and eventually terminate those EC2 instances. But that instance scale down tends to lag behind the pod scale down. So during this time, we're actually over-provisioned. 
Let's now look at what happens in the same situation, but running on the, under the hood on Fargate. With Fargate, I don't have to worry about having enough EC2 instances to run all of these pods. It's serverless compute. Fargate takes care of isolating each pod in a virtual machine and allocating the right amount of compute per pod. So now that traffic spike comes in again, new pods are spinning up, and Fargate is quickly allocating a new virtual machine per pod under the hood. There's a small latency spike there as pods start starting up, but it's quickly resolved once they're up and running. So using Fargate, the number of pods can react really quickly to changes in traffic to the site. Kubernetes spins down these pods as traffic is dropping off, and I don't have to worry about being over-provisioned because I'm using Fargate serverless compute. Side by side here, we can really see the difference between running on my own EC2 instances and running on Fargate. With EC2, we saw both under and over-provisioning, but with Fargate, I was able to quickly react to changes in traffic. Fargate isolated each of my pods with a virtual machine, and it allocated the right amount of compute per pod. So now that we've seen how Fargate scales out and isolates the containers for the serverless compute, let's now look at the virtualization technology we use to provide that strong isolation boundary between applications. Since Fargate's launch, we've used EC2 instances to isolate applications in virtual machines. In this model, each application is allocated a fresh EC2 instance running the Fargate data plane. But traditional virtual machines are pretty heavyweight to use for isolating containers. Traditional virtual machines tend to present a lot of interfaces and devices that containers simply don't care about. As a small example, a traditional VM will typically present a video card and reserve at least four megabytes of memory for graphics. But containers almost never have a graphical environment, and they can be really small, as small as 256 megabytes on Fargate. So these are wasted resources when using traditional VMs to isolate containers. Fargate provides better efficiency for isolating containers. Fargate is purpose-built for isolating containers and functions in virtual machines called micro-VMs. Micro-VMs provide the same level of isolation as a traditional VM, but they're fast and lightweight. They don't have any of the devices they don't need. The device model only implements the devices that are actually needed by containers and functions. So there is no video card inside of a micro VM reserving four megabytes of memory like in a traditional VM. In fact, a micro VM requires less than five megabytes of overhead total. So it's highly efficient to use for isolating containers. And we've been really excited to see open source projects like Weaveworks Ignite and Kata Containers leveraging Firecracker to provide fast, efficient isolation in their projects. So with Firecracker-based isolation, each Fargate application can be allocated a fresh Firecracker micro-VM instead of a fresh EC2 instance. These micro-VMs look pretty similar to the EC2 instance I showed you already. They look the same on the inside. There's no difference to the application container running inside them. And they have all the same components like the Fargate data plane. But with Firecracker, we're able to achieve better efficiency compared to traditional VMs. We can pack many micro-VMs onto a single nitro bare metal instance, with each micro-VM running its own isolated Fargate application. As we run more and more of Fargate on Firecracker, that high density means better efficiency in Fargate. I want to share a bit about what we're working on now under the hood on Fargate. 
we're optimizing how we fit Firecracker into Fargate. We originally ran the same Fargate data plane inside each micro VM, just like we did on each EC2 instance. But that's no longer optimal at our high scale and high density on nitro bare metal. So we've redesigned the Fargate data plane from the ground up for the unique needs of serverless container compute. This new data plane that's under development now is designed to run directly on the Nitro Bare Metal instance, where it manages all of the micro VMs and their container workloads inside them. The containers running inside the micro VMs can actually start up faster in this model, because they don't have to wait for any other components to start up in the micro VM, like that Fargate data plane. We're developing a core component of this new Fargate data plane in the open on GitHub, the Firecracker Container D project. Firecracker Container D makes it simpler to use Firecracker to isolate containers. It enables using the open source project Container D to manage my Firecracker micro VMs. It minimizes the overhead required for isolating containers in micro VMs. And it exposes container images as block devices to the micro VM. So check out Firecracker Container D on GitHub for a little sneak peek at the future of part of Fargate under the hood. Thank you so much. Thanks, Claire. So it's, we are, of course, fortunate that uh, the micro VMs also allow us to run Lambda. Yeah, and I think if you looked at the uh, Watch. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you've seen uh, Lambda improve over the past years, in the, what we've done in the, in, in the past, was it weeks, months, and releasing, we have released some really cool stuff. I think, uh, given that many of you rely on VPC boundaries, uh, we're able to actually really reduce the, uh, the startup latency in, uh, in the VPC boundary, within VPC boundaries. And if you look at uh, sort of the new concurrency scaling that we've released and you know, all the other components with proficient comp uh, concurrency, you can get really good control over your startup times and uh, quite a few other pieces. The thing is that with, uh, with Lambda, as well as with Fargate, we, uh, we always thought that these serverless technologies will be first adopted by uh, let's say, young technology companies. And it turns out that's not the case. The rapid adoption of serverless is happening in the enterprise, mostly because you really only have to pay for your execution times. And the management is so much simpler. And as such, enterprises are adopting serverless at tremendous speed. And I'd like to introduce to you Jeffrey Dows, uh, the IT executive for Vanguard to share about how they are making use of these technologies to completely revamp Vanguard. Jeffrey. Good morning. I'm thrilled to represent Vanguard today, and I'm excited to share with you Vanguard's journey to the cloud. At Vanguard, our core purpose is to take a stand for all investors, to treat them fairly, and to give them the best chance of investment success. 
Let me introduce you to our firm. We're a global asset manager. We have 30 million investors. They entrust us with $5.7 trillion of their assets. We offer 450 investment products. We have 17,000 crew. That's how we refer to our employees. We have no physical branches. We're a digital firm. 90% of our client interactions come through digital channels. We have 40 years of lowering the cost to invest. Most importantly, we have industry best client satisfaction results. From an IT perspective, we're big and we're complicated. We have global data centers, mainframes, thousands of servers, lots of storage, thousands of apps, 50,000 endpoints, 5,000 technical staff, and in our business, downtime is not tolerable. Six years ago, Vanguard senior IT leaders set out on a transformation. We knew that if Vanguard was going to stay competitive in the digital age, we needed to be better at the business of IT. We wanted to accelerate the pace of innovation. We wanted to deliver business value at startup speed. Continuous delivery, DevOps, microservices, cloud, new ways of working, CICD, all of these concepts were in play. But we knew cloud was the cornerstone to, go, to going fast. We knew it was the linchpin to our success. So we set out on a private cloud journey since we had some concerns about public cloud security. One year into our journey, back in 2015, we sent three of our cloud architects to reInvent. Upon their return, we knew we could not compete with the cloud-based services being delivered by AWS. We also knew that building a private cloud was going to take too long and be too expensive. A quick huddle with our CISO and other senior leaders, we pivoted to public cloud, and we selected AWS as our cloud provider. With public cloud as our destination, we quickly formed the cloud construction team, many of whom are in the audience today. <laughs> Thanks, guys. They are full stack in their structure. They are outcome-oriented in their mission. Most importantly, they have aligned goals. So how does a big firm like Vanguard, with big data centers, get to the cloud? What was our starting point? We had a traditional tech stack, heavily virtualized. We had big data platforms, monolithic applications. I'm not talking about monoliths that are a million lines of code. We had monoliths that were 30, 40, 50 million lines of code. And we had an APAS running on-prem for our emerging portfolio of microservices. Following a design guideline of security first, commensurate with a heavily regulated asset manager. We built out our accounts, VPCs, and a security apparatus that entailed over 150 security controls. With security in place, we wanted to start moving some of our workloads to the cloud. We started with some of our web apps, our microservices. We moved our APAS. We thought this was the 
fastest way to start getting some workloads into the cloud. At the same time, we established secure internet connectivity using Route 53 for DNS, AWS's web application firewall, and CloudFront for CDN. We also migrated from VPN access to Direct Connect for improved resiliency and bandwidth between our facilities. Then we wanted to shut down our rapidly growing on-prem big data platforms. We became heavy users of S3 and EMR. Other machine learning capabilities such as Comprehend, Lex, SageMaker, Transcribe, and Glue were introduced. More AWS security services were implemented. We used secret managers for authentication credentials. We used Macy for discovering and protecting sensitive information. And we used Shield for DDoS protection. We knew we had to get our data closer to the microservices. They were still reaching back to our on-prem data center for their data. Using CDC technology along with Aurora, it allowed us to move our data in a similar schema from our on-prem relational databases. Some of our microservices solution delivery teams wanted access to data in more of a key value structure, so we introduced Dynamo. Using Kinesis for data streaming and Lambda for event-driven data transformation, we get, began moving to DynamoDB. And this put us in a position to eliminate our cloud-based data cache. Our next huge design decision focused on our APAS. We pivoted to ECS on Fargate. As mentioned earlier in Werner's remarks, we got stronger container isolation, we got security out of the box, we got integration with other key services, especially identity and access management. Most importantly to me, the guy that was paying the AWS bill, we got into a pure consumption model. And we hooked ECS on Fargate up to Dynamo and Aurora. We are now starting to drain our microservices from our APAS. We are accelerating the pace of our monolith decomposition. And this should allow us to retire our APAS in the near future. Finally, we started to move the gold copy of bounded context of function and data to the cloud. Recently, we have strategically decided to host our emerging advisory platform on ECS on Fargate. This platform supports our advice services that are increasingly in demand from our clients. So here's our end state, just about a 100% cloud-native architecture. So what does Vanguard get out of this? We know we can reduce the cost of compute by at least 30%. We know we can build software 30% faster. We know we can deploy our capabilities 20 times faster. And all this leads to a better ability to innovate. And along the way, we get improved resiliency. Since 1973, Vanguard has been disrupting how investors pursue financial security. 
Today marks the 17th time Vanguard has been on stage somewhere at reInvent. I'd like to thank AWS for these opportunities. I'd like to thank the Vanguard Cloud Construction team for making all this possible. And I'd like to thank our investors who entrust us with their assets so that they can enjoy financial security. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey. So it's really cool to hear from, from customers as for, for like Vanguard, especially seeing all the, the benefits they're getting out of the platform. Um, one thing, if I think back about uh, when we just talked about Nitro, uh, I think about a sort of a more general concept. And it's the fact that at AWS, and, and Amazon as well, but AWS especially, we always think about evolvable architectures. And what, what do I mean by that is that you often when you start building an architecture, you have to be keeping in mind that that might not be the same software you will be running a year or two years from now. And especially when you have to scale up, like we often have to do within AWS, you have to make sure that, for example, with each order of magnitude, you can almost revisit the architecture that you have built. And I think probably there's no better example for that than S3, the sort of the first real service that we delivered to everyone. And uh, I remember that uh, when we were designing S3, we had uh, a number of objects on the board that we thought we would be storing in the first six months. And just for the heck of it, we added two orders of magnitude to it. We blew through that in the first month. You know? And it meant, certainly meant that we had to keep a good eye on our architecture. Now, last year, um, Milan was on stage to talk about sort of how S3 evolved over time. And it started off with eight microservices. And uh, last year, when my lamb was on stage, there were 153 microservices in S3. Now there are 262. Yeah? But for example, all the new capabilities that you've heard about, for example, S3 Access Point, which was launched in Andy's keynote, yeah? that's a new microservice. Um, S3 Replication Time Control, is eight microservices. Um, the access analyzer for S3 um, is another four to five microservices. What this shows is that we're able to evolve the system because we've taken really good care in thinking about that this would be an evolvable architecture. Now, one of the things that I'm always proud of with S3, and it's one of the core principles in S3, is reliability. Yeah, mostly because as I always like to say, everything fails all the time. Yeah? And, and mostly, if you think about hardware, if you think about disks, they, they really have high failure rates. Um, but network controllers do weird things. You have um, bit flips in memory. Uh, there's all these things that will happen to you at scale that you need to be able to be prepared for. And, there's all, and, and, and that's even the hardware. Not even thinking about sort of like black swan events, like a bug gets hit in, in one of the components. So we're always thinking about how can we reduce the impact if things fail, how can we reduce the impact on our customers? And we call that blast radius. So we're always thinking about how to reduce the blast radius. And I've talked last year, um, 
And last year also, Peter Vorschel gave a great talk on cell-based architectures. Yeah, and so let me just quickly revisit that. Yeah, if you would have a regional architecture, something that spans multiple AZs, a cell-based version of that would sort of this bring the smaller components into that such that the blast radius um, of a potential failure is just limited to the cell itself. But also if you have a zonal architecture, something that just lives in one zone at a time or at different zones, you can also actually make use of cell-based architectures for the same approach. It is always the case that we want to reduce the blast radius. How exactly to pick the size of the cells? If you have smaller cells, then you can really reduce the blast radius. It's easy to test and easy to operate. But if you have larger cells, they're more cost-efficient and reduce splits. Yeah? And so you can also see the whole system is easier to operate. And the question is always how to really nicely partition your system such that you can actually make use of cell-based architectures. Now, if you think about a zonal-based uh, service in AWS, probably EBS is a really good example. So let's take a look at the kind of things that we've done in EBS to really reduce the blast radius in that world. Yeah, so you have to think about EBS as a block store service, but don't think about it as something that has just disks attached. Yeah, it is really the case that there are multiple shards that actually make up um, the volume. And of course, we replicate that. Yeah, so there is another set of shards that actually is the replication for all of this. Now, to control any type of failures of any of these shards, we have a configuration master. Yeah, and the configuration master sits actually on the second network. And the second network is a sort of an overflow network. It's not as big provisioned as, uh, as, as the front-end network between EC2 and an EBS. But the, the configuration master sits there. And the configuration master does nothing, actually. The only thing it does is when any of these shards would fail, or any of the nodes would fail, it sort of restarts, triggers the re-replication. So it's actually a pretty simple one. Yeah, so something fails, it fills it over to the backup, and then starts re-replicating to a new set of shards. And so the configuration master doesn't have to do that terribly much. But if multiple things fail at the same time, this thing can get easily overloaded. And especially because we're not talking about one disk, or we're not talking about one volume, we are talking about millions and millions and millions of volumes. And so if you only have one configuration master, that configuration master actually becomes a single point of failure because it can easily get overwhelmed. So thinking about sort of what can we do to improve that. Now, as always, you know, there is always this tension between consistency and availability. Yeah, the CAP theorem says that in a, in a world where you have partitions, yeah, you cannot have n consistency and availability. But consistency in EBS is non-negotiable. So we need to make sure that we have an environment where we can actually ensure both high availability and consistency and, and make sure that the consistency never gets traded off. Again, cell-based architectures come back into this. Yeah? So if I apply that to, uh, to EBS and EBS master, 
What you would do is you can maybe start off with one in a zone, and then you split the zone into two, and maybe you split them into four. Yeah? And every time you reduce the blast radius of impact of a failure of an, or an overload of the configuration master. But we are thinking about this, we're thinking about what is actually the smallest unit of cell that we can actually achieve with EBS. And then, especially for the configuration master, and then it dawned on us that actually the, the EBS is a very unique case in the configuration master there as well, because not all data needs to be available for all clients. Yeah, remember that in essence in the old style database world, that meant that you, know, you have this one database that needs to be accessible by all your clients. That's not the case here. Because it's only the client, only the EC2 instance and the EBS volumes that actually need to have access to this particular configuration data. So instead of doing sort of splitting it up into four, we went to millions of tiny databases to ensure that the blast radius in EBS is as small as possible. Yeah, and Fresenia is actually comes out of the, uh, uh, from a lesson in the world. It's the Portuguese man of world. And uh, it looks like a jellyfish, but in essence, it just consists out of hundreds or thousands of really small microorganisms that have a colony together and present this one thing to you. So that's where the name comes from. If you look at sort of what the data model is in it, each volume that gets created gets a partition key. And each database in Facilia manages only one partition key. And then what you do, you create this colony of microcells where each of these cells support only one partition key. And so that really means we end up with millions and millions of these cells, but that's okay. They're small and simple to manage. And the cell lives in the same environment as the nodes. And so actually inside the cell, there's seven nodes, runs Paxos, and uh, actually is able to have a, just a distinguished proposer as the master. So it runs seven cells with Paxos to uh, have this state machine be, uh, be reliable. One of the things that we've been able to do with Facedia as well is to make sure that these cells are always as close to the client as possible because these databases are really tiny. And so what often happens is that clients move throughout the AZ. Yeah, this gets volumes get attached to different uh, servers, things like that. So with Facedia, we're able to make sure that the configuration master lives as close to the cells as possible, uh, to the clients as possible, and as such, again, reducing the blast radius. So if you look at sort of what the impact has been of at Fresalia, this is uh, before Fresalia, this is sort of the error rate in, uh, it's an aggregated error rate um, of accessing configuration master in a pre-Fresalia world. And you, you know, always, as you can see, what happens after that is actually pretty spectacular. So again, cell-based architectures play a very important role here. And in this particular case, we've been able to go to, a cell, to cells that are as small as one single key and as thus significantly reducing the blast radius of any potential impact of a failure. 
Now, if you think about sort of cell-based architectures is one thing. There's, there's some other techniques that we've learned over time at, uh, at Amazon that I think uh, is very cool. It's because especially if your application is either stateless or has soft state, what are the kind of things that you can do? Yeah, and so this is where clients actually are involved in the story as well. Think about sort of a regional architecture. And I just used the card deck of cards as uh, representing the different customers at the dice, given that we're here in Vegas. If uh, the, the diamond one actually starts uh, starts introducing enormous workloads, or he, he pushes something so hard that a bug is being triggered, if you have a regional architecture, yeah, it might take out the first node. And what it will do, of course, it will immediately retry. And with that, it will take out everything in your whole region. Now, if you have a cell-based architecture, yeah, basically you map them onto, you map your customers onto a particular cell. Now, so if again the same scenario happens, yeah, what happens is that the two nodes in the cell get taken out. Okay, good. In this particular case, only 25% of your customers are affected. In this take uh, the, the, the clubs. No, what is that? Yeah, it's clubs. Um, and so, but what now if we go to something completely different? And it's called shuffle sharding. Basically, what you do, you have a number of nodes, and you have, um, you, you actually take each client twice and actually take, do a, a random hash or just a randomly uh, spread them over the, uh, the different charts. Yeah, if now Diamond is actually introducing failures, what you can see is that there are actually not, all, not another customer that in this shares the same cell is affected. Which means basically that if we, uh, if we look at the math behind this, yeah, it's basically combinatorial. Because in this particular case, with eight nodes and a shard size of two, yeah, the failure rate of the impact of a particular failure is only 3.6% of your customers. Now, that's if you have a very small set. But imagine if you improve this to 100 and have a shard size of five, then you can see that any one client can almost not impact any of the other clients. And so as N grows, the combinations grow, and you can really make use of the math to actually really build a highly reliable system and really minimize the blast radius of any failure into the system. And so it does mean that you have to have a smart client that actually knows how to do retries and things like that. But for the rest, I think the math really builds this well. Now, with all of this, Building distributed systems is hard. Yeah. And we've always done that. Um, and we've done this at, uh, at Amazon for the past 20, 25 years at scale that is unparalleled. And so what many of you have always been asking us, how do you guys do this? I mean, after 25 years, you must have a lot of experience in building these kind of systems. So how does, how does Amazon do this uh, sort of build resilience into that. How does Amazon engineer at this scale? What are the kind of lessons that you have learned about managing operations? 
And so we've been thinking about what we can do there for you. And we've gotten our best engineers and architects together who have given, been given talks over the past years. And I'm happy to announce today the Amazon Builders Library that will actually bring all of this information for you so that you can build highly reliable systems just like Amazon is doing. And so we are uh, launching this with, um, with 15 articles and uh, in all sorts of different areas. And for example, impl how to implement health checks. What are the best practices around that? What, are the, what is the history of Amazon there? What are the kind of things that we've learned there? And so I hope that this all helps you build distributed systems at the same scale and the same reliability as that Amazon and AWS is doing. And so if I think about uh, that we've, we're all charting into uncharted territories, yeah? and um, then our next customer is one that is really charting new territories. So SailDrone is a very exciting startup that uh, creates wind and solar-powered autonomous surface vehicles, and they're making use of all sorts of technologies to chart everything in the seas. So I'd like to invite the CEO of uh, SailDrone, Sebastian de Halleu, to actually come and talk to you about that. Sebastian. Our oceans are unbelievably vast, covering 70% of the planet. They act as a powerful engine driving complex planetary systems that affect all of humanity. And yet, ocean data is scarce by any standards. And that's because oceans are not just incredibly vast, they are also unforgiving, dangerous environments. Now, on land, we have grown accustomed to billions of connected sensors. But at sea, we only have hundreds, principally for moorings. Imagine a large steel buoy tethered to the ocean floor with a four-mile-long cable weighted down by a set of train wheels, which is both dangerous to deploy and expensive to maintain. Now, of course, satellites have been providing the big picture over the past 25 years, but they can only measure a few variables with low resolution, and they cannot see through water. So we know we can do better. After all, we've been using robots to study distant worlds in our solar system for a while. So it's about time we start quantifying our own planet because we cannot fix what we cannot measure and what we cannot prepare for what we don't know. So this is what we set out to do at SailDrone. Our breakthrough started 10 years ago, pursuing the land sailing speed record. On March 26, 2009, our founder Richard Jenkins broke the record in the Mojave Desert, 126.2 miles per hour in a wind-powered car called the Greenberg Mark V. That record is still standing. And thank you. <laughs> and this was the birth of the sail drone. At the core of the record was an innovative wing and tail arrangement, similar to what provides lift to an airplane, but tilted 90 degrees. This is a solution that's capable of producing immense forward propulsion for very long periods of time, but it only consumes less than three watts of electrical power, less than a refrigerator light bulb. And 
Each cell drone carries a suite of sensors to measure atmospheric and oceanographic variables with incredible precision. Things like wind speed and direction, air temperature, pressure, barometric pressure, humidity, solar radiation, but also in the water, water temperature, salinity, dissolved oxygen, dissolved carbon dioxide, atmospheric carbon dioxide, um, underwater sounds, uh, current profile, biomass, bathymetry down to 1,000 meters. I'm talking about a powerhouse of data collection. And of course, not just one sail drone, but a global fleet of sail drone. And this incredible planetary infrastructure naturally is powered by AWS. Sail drone is all about endurance and resiliency. Our robots are working around the clock, achieving mission duration of 12 months or more. So Werner's talk about resiliency is the exact reason we chose AWS as a cloud provider, a partner that can not only massively scale, but that can also provide industrial strength resiliency. And AWS delivered, enabling us to provide mission-critical data real-time, around the clock, to a global customer base without skipping a beat. Here's an example of why this resiliency is so critical. Better fish stock data is very important to manage our fisheries. This is information that affects millions of jobs globally. And after millennia of growing catches, 1996 was peak fisheries. Catches have been flat, indicating severe overfishing of our oceans. But how do you manage a resource that you cannot measure? So the mission is estimate the biomass of various fish stock, such as pollock, sardines, mackerel. And cell drones do this using sonars, a device that emits sounds, a sound wave, and listens for the echo from the back of fish and from the seabed. And by painting the ocean with sound, you can develop large statistical model of biomass over very, very significant areas. So we do this with fleets of cell drones, because the fish migrate, so the faster you count them, the better the estimate. So here's a fleet of sail drone at work over the Bering and Chuck Sea in the US Arctic, which is home to about one third of our commercial catches. And closer to home, we do this work every year along the west coast of the United States, from Vancouver Island in Canada, all the way down to the Mexican border. This is truly groundbreaking work by autonomous vehicle. Above the surface, our onboard cameras are busy accruing a very large data set of tagged images, which we have to come to think as the ImageNet of the ocean. And this data set now powers the very first machine learning algorithm optimized for maritime domain awareness, which is a, a place where everything is always moving in every frame, a very complex problem. This is, of course, still work in progress because the ocean keeps on surprising us, and the algorithm encounters novel scenes like a drone riding seal, which is very hard to tag. Earlier this year, sail drones successfully completed the first ever unmanned autonomous circumnavigation of Antarctica. You've seen from the deep race how hard it is to go around the track. We went around Antarctica 196 days nonstop from New Zealand to New Zealand. And data from this mission quantified the key role, thank you, <laughs> that Southern Ocean plays in regulating our, our planet's carbon dioxide, a key driver of climate change. So, to achieve this feat, we relied on some serious data crunching on AWS to navigate from waypoint to waypoint. First, we had to ingest numerous, uh, numerical models describing changes in pressure systems, which in turn drive various wind patterns uh, from different directions, something that influences the trajectory of the drones in pretty dramatic ways. Below the surface, we had to track uh, currents, uh, which are eddying around and swirling. I can slow progress, and of course, waves 
60-foot large waves, different wave height, different periods, which act as so many obstacles that can slow a progress or literally destroy the vehicles. So as you can see, as we zoom in onto the drone, you can see that the navigation logic is actually quite complex, navigating these multiple fields in the most opti optimal manner. And this is a task we accomplished seamlessly with clusters of AWS compute and then sending the resulting instructions to the vehicles via satellite. Our longer-term vision is one we called the quantified planet. It's not about just one cell drone. We're dividing the entire global ocean into 1,000 subdomains, each six by six degree in size. And we're working to deploy a drone in each of those boxes. The goal is to achieve planetary coverage and thereby help deliver better insights into those planetary systems that affect humanity. And we can do this because these systems, like weather, can now be modeled numerically on AWS using new instance types like P3 and C5N instead of the old supercomputers. So combining the AWS compute and sail drones' unprecedented institute data, we can deliver new insights into global precipitation, for example, or into global wind monitoring hurricanes, storms, and typhoons. And of course, for long-term monitoring of heat fluxes in the tropical Pacific, the famous El Nino. And we do this delivery in all, all in near real time. We compute, package, and deliver these insights in the hands of our users globally via our sail drone forecast app. So what's next? Our next frontier is mapping the global seabed. As hard as it may be to believe, 85% of the global seabed remains unmapped and unexplored. And we are hard at work to solve this data collection problem. But big problems need big solutions. So we have built the ultimate machine for this task. And I'm very proud to present the Sail Drone Surveyor, which is a 72-foot-long wind-powered vehicle carrying a one-ton sonar system capable of imaging the bottom of the sea down to 8,000 meters. That's 24,000 feet. So together with our partners, we aim to complete this mission within the next 10 years creating the very first complete map of Earth for the benefit of humanity. It's a true planetary endeavor, and it involves unprecedented scope and data set. And like so much of our work, it's really made possible by our collaboration with AWS to help store and process this, uh, this amazing set of critical data. So we're excited to see what the future holds as we explore new realms and new possibilities with Celdron, and we look forward to continuing strengthening the amazing partnership we have with AWS. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a, a big part, of course, of, of weather predictions, um, fluid dynamics. If you uh, want to uh, see how you can treat AWS as a supercomputer, you should uh, rewatch uh, Peter DeSantis' presentation from Monday night where he really explains how you can make use of uh, easy to instances to build supercomputers. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a different uh, track now, looking a bit at uh, more at the big industry kind of stuff that we've seen doing, seen happening, and especially in the world of manufacturing. And so Industry 1.0 was, of course, was at the end of the 1800s when uh, steam machines came into action and we saw the whole industrial revolution starting to take place, and the gin carts starting to be invented. 
And so if you now look at uh, sort of from industry 1.0, moving over to 2.0 is where electricity gets introduced. Um, it becomes this big uh, source of power. And you see, you start to see major shifts in the manufacturing process as well. Uh, because the first, um, uh, is it the first assembly lines are being built in those days. 3.0 is when all the electronics start to arrive and all factory floors start to be uh, sort of controlled for uh, PCLs and things like that. And then in the, uh, the next phase, in what we now this, these days call Industry 4.0, is where uh, automation starts taking place. Yeah, where everything becomes automated. And especially also things like logistics and everything else around. But is this, are we really at Industry 4.0? Because I don't really believe that so much. Yeah, because if you look in, uh, in 2015, the average age of, a, uh, of the, the equipment in factories is 22 years. And it, they have never been so old as uh, since 1935. Yeah, in fact, Equipment really is too old to be able to produce the data that we want to get out of this to create insights. And so I don't think we are at 4.0 yet because factories and manufacturing sites need to change significantly if we really want to start creating insights into this world. Yeah, and if you look at all the different pieces that are still, uh, um, still really a big deal in manufacturing sites, there is no data that is helping them create that insight. Yeah, and the data needs to start flowing out of these manufacturing sites into places where you can actually do, do the analytics. And if you want to create insights, there's a lot of insights to be had. Yeah, and if I look, for example, at you know, predictive maintenance or you know, autonomous transportation, wearables, collaborative robots, all of these kind of things is, in my eyes, what Industry 4.0 is about, but there is hardly any manufacturing that is already at that pace. And today, factories are already producing about 1,800 petabytes of data a year, but it's only a small fraction of what is needed to really create the insights into this world. And whether that is in manufacturers, or whether it is in smart cities, or if you actually start moving this data into the cloud, you can actually have multi-layers approach. And whether you want to do things that this is actually where we are here. Yeah? Or if you want to go out and actually start thinking about transportation and how companies can make smarter decisions about computation. Yeah? Or, for example, move out into the level of, uh, of cities or go even further, yeah? go up and think about sort of what are the kind of things that we can and have to do around agriculture. Now, the world actually grows more and more. Um, the expectation is that by is it, uh, 2050, uh, we have 35% more people in this world that need to be fed. All the way, all the way to transportation. Yeah? We can have all these multiple layers of how sort of we should be collecting data and how these data need to really grow together to create new insights. And sort of, if I think about that, and I think about sort of bring that back to how Amazon operates, 
I think back on sort of uh, the physical parts of, of Amazon.com, and that's the fulfillment centers. Yeah, so in the, in the early days, we sold books. Yeah? And there were about 3 million books when, uh, uh, available when, uh, when Amazon started. And of course, fulfillment was, was challenging, but you know, they had their own logistical challenges, but it's actually relatively simple. However, if you need to start selling TVs, and uh, toothpaste, and pillows, and shoes, and coffee, things become a lot more complex. Yeah? And our plans was really to do that. So in the early days, this looked like a lot like, uh, um, like a normal warehouse would look like. But that definitely is no longer the case. Yeah? We aimed to really sort of create better deliveries. Yeah? We, we moved at one moment from $25 free shipping, and then to two-day shipping, and one-day shipping now. And if you're with Prime now, you get it within an hour. So how do all of these things change while you still need to improve work, worker safety and make sure that you can do the, the, the guarantees at the speed that you would like to do? Of course, in all of that, you know, in a typical warehouse, there's about 4 million bins and about 10 million items. We use computer vision throughout the, uh, the, the systems. We set it out in an, uh, what's called a Manhattan grid style, where the paths are uh, with, with the pods. The, uh, the Kiva systems can actually follow. They bring them towards where uh, the workers are, such that you can put things in a box together and make sure that actually if there are two items that you've ordered, that they do go into the same box together. And as such, we use machine learning to actually predict how to do these things. Yeah, and it's definitely in four different areas. Yeah? There's forecasting, what products should we be buying? And then there is, who should we buy it from? from is this from a large manufacturer? Is it from a mom-and-pop shop? And then the question is, where do we place them? And then if we want to place them, what kind of promises can we give to our customers in terms of delivery? And this is actually pretty challenging. Yeah? Because actually, if it's a very popular product, like something seasonal, like like warm socks or sun hats in the summer, that's easy to, to, to do. Or if it's just coffee and things like that, those are all easy things to predict because they actually sold across the world. But what now if you need to, uh, if you have a Nicolas Cage reversible sequin pillow cover? Well, if you have that one, that's harder to predict where you would actually have to place that one. And so, but what you can do, you can make use of machine learning and look at thousands and thousands of similar items and start making predictions where you should buy them, so that if you are in Vegas and you want this pillow, you probably can get it in the coming two days. And that's where machine learning plays an increasingly important role. And if you look at many of the things that we've done at Amazon in the past 20, 25 years, machine learning is probably at the basis of all of that. And it is at small stuff, like vendor lead detection or fraud detection, or all of these kind of things that are all happening behind the covers, but also major innovations, like Alexa, yeah, or the drones, or Scout. All of these are driven by machine learning. Or probably the most extreme one that you all know about is the Amazon Go Store. You could just walk in, take things off the shelf, put it in your bag, and walk out, and you get charged. There's enough challenges with all of that. Yeah, you have to first figure out what the account is and how the account is moving through the store. 
Here you see uh, an anonymized uh, CDV presentation of that. And some, some of these you see turning yellow. And that means that we're actually not really certain who the account, what the account is that is actually moving that. And all the challenges are with computer vision is actually with products. You know, some, some products are the same, but they crumbled. Yeah? Or other products are actually really almost identical, but they're different products. And then also, how are people actually interacting with the store? And so we've invested a lot in generating um, synthetic information such that we can actually start making these algorithms more efficient and more accurate. And it all results in you can just scan in when you walk into the store and walk out and get charged. But if you look at sort of outside of AWS, outside of Amazon, there are so many cool things happening in the physical world um, that are actually powered by AWS. So let's take a look at a few of those. Yeah, first of all, about sort of work, workplace safety. This is one of my favorite examples uh, of uh, customers that uh, went on the, on the path to, uh, to improve the quality of uh, their operations and the safety. This is Woodside. They are a, a liquid natural gas producer in Australia and have a, actually a significant operation. Uh, one of the parts of that producing liquid nitro, li natural LPG, whatever, <laughs> is actually to freeze it down to 160 degrees uh, under, say, under zero. And so that happens in this massive refrigerator over here. And one of the things there, in the old world, if you would have sensors on them, the only thing that these sensors would do is alarm you if something went wrong. They didn't have any ability to produce data. Woodside moved to a system where they actually were producing data, and actually, so there's a process part of this, there's a failure part that's called foaming. And that would have a sort of an alarm go off, and then the whole factory would have to shut down for maybe even weeks, and it's a pretty hazardous environment. And so what happens now that these sensors, and there's 10,000 10, sensors in this refrigerator, if actually they now can actually start to predict foaming and no longer create these hazardous conditions for their customers. But they, so after that, this is the first experiment which, which they did, and after that, they flipped the switch and brought 200,000 sensors online and actually started to create autonomous environments for their workers. All these environments are extremely hazardous. And so on one hand, they have autonomous platforms that are out in the sea, and there's no workers on there. There's only robots. And in this particular case, you can see the robots that are actually moving throughout their plant which is an extremely hazardous plant uh, without any danger to the workers. Because the workers sit in a, uh, in a centralized environment where they can actually see what these robots are also seeing. These uh, boxes that you see popping up are IoT sensors. And they run AWS IoT Core there. And they're able to actually take actions if sort of control things need to just take happen um, instead of just having, having to send people in big hazardous suits out there to do the work for them. Module is, in a, is another interesting company. They make wearable devices 
to uh, improve workplace safety, like safety belts and gloves and things like that, so that they can track how workers move through hazardous environments. And there's one interesting story that they told me, is that one of the major US airlines actually used these safety belts to measure how far uh, people are actually bending over, how far their workers are bending over, and whether they actually use the right techniques to pick things up from the ground to really improve uh, worker health. United Rentals is moving to create these massive machineries that are completely autonomous, so that nobody longer leads to work with these massive machineries in hazardous environments. Another area that is really interesting for uh, in this digital sort of physical world uh, combination is uh, the way that cities are being made smarter. And there's a lot of work going on in that particular world. And these are just a few, thing, a few uh, interesting examples. ShotSpotter measures gun activity in a city. And apparently for every gun-related homicide, there are 100 gunfight, 100 gunshot accidents that are never reported. They make use of multiple sensors to really be able to accurately and within 60 seconds be able to actually identify where the location was of a gunshot and send uh, and have um, law enforcement actually take care of that. Uh, the city of Miami has uh, taken this on and in 2014, and since then, homicides have dropped 35% in, uh, in Miami. The city of Virginia Beach has put sensors out in the ocean to start measuring and predicting uh, when floods are going to happen. The same is for Mayo Vision. They actually put uh, sensors in and around uh, the streets so she can optimize transportation. Another very interesting sort of physical, digital world is that of uh, agriculture. And there's, there's a lot of work going on in the world in finding new ways to feed the future. And there's two of our interesting customers in that space. One is the Climate Corporation. They actually make use of uh, digital, the whole digital architecture. It's called the uh, Climate Field View. They make use of all the censoring of their tractors and other equipment on site, as well as uh, satellite imagery, to help uh, farmers optimize yield. The Farmers Business Network is an interesting one, uh, because here is farmers that are sharing anonymously information about the yields of their fields and the kind of crops that they are growing, such that they can actually have collective bargaining with seed providers as well as setting the prices for the crops that they are selling. And the same goes for the world of uh, transportation. Yeah, and whether it is uh, Siemens that are putting sensors all around the world uh, on train tracks, uh, because the biggest cause of delay is often the bending of uh, the rails and things like that, so they can all measure that. Um, Deutsche Bahn, the big uh, German transportation provider, is, uh, is putting this out in, uh, also in sensors in each of their trains so they can accurately measure delays and things like that. Uh, Vantage Power is an interesting uh, customer because they have sensors in all the electric buses so they can do preventive maintenance on the batteries of these buses. And then if you think about sort of coming back to where we talked about earlier, is really modern, modernization of manufacturing. 
This is all about creating data streams out of manufacturing to actually really optimize insights. And to talk more about this, uh, we have a really interesting next speaker. He has uh, won the CIO Innovation Award of CIO Magazine uh, this year. And to talk more about this modernization of uh, manufacturing is the group CIO of Volkswagen, Dr. Martin Hoffman. Hi, I'm Martin Hoffman from Volkswagen. Volkswagen started with the Beetle. Today, we are a group of 12 iconic automotive brands. And the brands with our portfolio are VW, Audi, Porsche, Bentley, Bugatti, Lamborghini, Seat, Skoda, Ducati Motorcycles, MEN, and Scania Trucks. We have 365 models in our portfolio. So if you want to drive a different model every day, it's going to take you a year of pure fun and joy, I promise. We produce 11 million vehicles per year, which is about 44,000 a day. Why do I mention this number? This is a massive scale and a requirement for any supply chain on a global basis to run in a very efficient and effective way. So our supply chain is highly complex and global. We have more than 1,500 suppliers globally, and they produce and manufacture every day more than 200 million components and parts. And these components and parts have to be shipped into our global factories. So there are 18,000 trucks per day shipping components into our factory, 7,700 ships on the oceans, crossing the oceans with produced vehicles. And in a year, it's about 75 million cubic meters of material that we process. And we do this in 122 factories worldwide, five in North America, nine in Brazil and Argentina, 71 in Europe, four in uh, South Africa, 33 China and India. All these factories are running on different grown technology. They have a different age, and so it's very hard to scale from an IT standpoint. So what we are doing together with AWS, we're lifting 122 factories into the cloud. And we do this with one common global architecture that we are building with AWS. So this entire project is what we call the Volkswagen Industrial Cloud. Right now, probably the biggest IoT project in the manufacturing world. And we chose AWS, not only because of technology, but because of the ability to scale, to provide us with standards for our factories. The implementation speed that we are getting from um, AWS methodologies, the flexibility, and the culture is helping us to really accelerate this project. The way we build it, in the center, we build on AWS Cloud what we call the digital production platform. This is an AWS Cloud platform in which we connect all the machines, the robots, press shop, print shop, the body shop, assembly uh, machines, the logistics system, they all get connected into the cloud. 
on which we run heavy lifting AI and machine learning algorithms, IoT services, and security controls to constantly optimize and compute situation at the factory. And then what we do is, on top of the AWS cloud, we put what we call the Volkswagen Group App Store. This is where we develop use case-based applications for the factory. We develop it once and copy-paste in all our factories. They can download it from the cloud. Applications like predictive maintenance, algorithms that manage and optimize fa factory functions. So this is our digital production platform. Now, if you take it and extend it to the outside world, which means we are integrating, connecting all our suppliers into that cloud. We're integrating our logistics companies, equipment manufacturers, and all our business partners will be connected to the industrial cloud. We're even that open that we will open it up for other automotive manufacturers to use applications and technology in the industrial cloud. They're also invited to contribute and to load software into the cloud like an open source ecosystem. So this is going to be one of the biggest ecosystems um, that um, will be built in the industry. The architecture behind, I can't go into all the details and you know them better than I do, but there are four major building blocks that we are using the architecture. One is the OT, Operation Technology IT Gateway, connecting machines, robots, into the cloud. It's the edge gateway, because a lot of the functions and workloads have to run close to the machines. We're using outposts, two outposts per factory, because there are several applications that have to run on-prem, and this is why we're using outposts for our plant cloud. And the fourth element is our DPP Enterprise Cloud. This is the application framework, highly standardized, where we'll be able to quickly, at higher speed, develop applications for a production system and um, keep them in the cloud. Now let me show you something. This is where it all happens. This is the shop floor. This is where the AWS cloud gets married with our machines, with robots, with welding systems, and all you can imagine running a factory. So thousands of sensors are constantly sending data into the AWS cloud, into our digital production platform, so that algorithms, machine learning algorithms, can constantly optimize setting of the factories and parameters of the machines. And um, we also run applications for our employees based on the cloud to better manage our factory system. As Werner mentioned earlier in his talk, transformation in the manufacturing goes way beyond automation. It's about full integration of all data points in the factory. So Volkswagen Industrial Cloud is the foundation for our new production strategy. In the future, we will have autonomous factories, darkroom factories, and this is the start in that direction. But we will also reduce factory costs by doing that. We define IT standards between the plants. We increase product production program fulfillment 
That means delivering vehicles on time to our customers. And our product launches will be much faster so we can come to market earlier with new vehicles. In numbers, it's a 30% increase in productivity. We can decrease our factory cost by 30%, and we are targeting 1 billion euros of savings in our supply chain. It has been an incredible journey with AWS as a partner. Thank you very much. So I've been uh, fortunate in the past years to travel the world and uh, meet with many of our customers. And it's always interesting to see that there's a certain group of customers, younger businesses, that are trying to solve really hard human problems. And whether that is uh, um, around education, whether it is around health, all of them are working hard in tackling the hardest human problems that we have at this moment. For example, Aquabyte is uh, a company out of Bergen, is in Bergen in Norway, and they're working on how to create protein. Yeah, the, the protein is likely to become the major food source in the future, and so what they do, they grow salmons. And a pen like that easily has 200,000 salmons. And so it's interesting to see that they allowed us to come on site and actually video this. So we started a TV series called Now Go Build. And there's been eight episodes by now. And they all deal with some of the world's hardest problems, where young businesses are really tackling hard problems in collaboration with AWS. So this is around food. Um, this is one of my favorites. This was the first episode we did. It is in a company called Hara Token in Jakarta. And the problem in Indonesia is that many of the farmers, the small farm holders, have no identity. And as such, they cannot get loans to buy seeds for their farms. They have to go to a loan shark, who there in Indonesia often charge 60%. And so by giving these farmers an identity, but not only an identity, also measure the size of their plot of land and the yield of that plot of land, they're able to give these farmers an identity and data that they can take to the banks. And the banks are eager to actually give these farmers loans because the repay rate is almost 100%. So again, these are companies that are really tackling really hard human problems. Uh, there was one episode that was a bit more fun in all of this. And that's the episode we released today, the episode that we did in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. I love this city. My city. I'm in Amsterdam for one of my favorite gatherings, the Amsterdam Dance Event. It is exciting to see the role that technology is playing in removing the obstacles between the song in the musician's head and the wall of sound that helps us do one thing. Dance. So the other um, episode that, we'll, uh, that we released last week 
um, was in Rio de Janeiro, where it's all about healthcare. How to find uh, new ways of providing healthcare to the poorest people in Brazil. Even though Brazil has a, uh, a national health service, they're not capable of actually keeping up with the needs of, uh, of the Brazilians, and especially not the poor Brazilians. So I urge you to go check it out. These are very inspirational stories of very young businesses on, uh, uh, that are running on AWS, solving some of the world's hardest problems. Well, with all of that, I hope to see you guys tonight. So have fun at the party and go build. See you.